author Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Welcome to this broadcast of the Paul Leslie Hour. Now in our 15th year as of this very episode. And we have a very special guest joining us today. Occasionally in the world of music, a recording artist comes along who sings a song and they make it their own. Our guest is a Grammy-nominated vocalist. Stephen Holden of the New York Times wrote that she has a voice of phenomenal beauty. It's a great pleasure to welcome singer, performing, and recording artist Jane Monheit. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure. So how are you today? I'm lovely. How are you? Doing okay. I was telling you before we started, going through some intense traffic, but I was listening to some of your music and it was doing a good job of soothing me. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious, do you think you were born to be a singer? Well... Uh, considering the genetic jackpot I was offered by my family in that regard, I should think yes. <laughs> considering, you know, being born with a really nice instrument didn't come from nowhere. I owe that straight to my family. A lot of beautiful voices in my family. Tell us a little bit more about your upbringing, what life was like in the house, and about some of the, the, the musical history in the family. I'm actually with my parents right now, which is nice because I don't see them that often anymore. They raised me on this music. Uh, The jazz came from my mother's side. Her parents were another set of parents to me, Um, still are. And, uh, well, my grandmother, my grandfather passed away a a while back. But, um, you know, I spent half my childhood at their house, you know, sitting on the living room floor listening to jazz records. And then at home... You know, I was getting all kinds of musical theater from my mom and then bluegrass from my dad. And then in addition to that, I was checking out all the music my own generation was into, too. So and at that time, it was, you know, the 80s, the 90s. There was all kinds of great pop music, rock music, R&B. There was so much good stuff happening. So it was just a musical wonderland. I had anything and everything I wanted. It was amazing. I'd be curious to know. Did the bluegrass have an effect on on your own music at all? Certainly, because, uh, you know, there are times all the time where I cover things that are a little bit folkier or that those vocal influences will creep in, you know, even during a standard sometimes. I find the older I get, the more all of these influences come together. I don't keep them as separate as I used to. I used to keep them very, very separate. And uh, I really don't do that anymore. Now they now they come together more, probably just because I'm 40 and all of you comes together more, you know, as you get older. There was one singer I was talking to, and he said that he considered himself a digger. And I said, <laughs> what do you mean by that, a digger? And when I look at your albums, it's not just what everybody would expect. It's not just, okay, here's... My Funny Valentine, you know, not that there's anything wrong with that song, but you, you have no, like it's a, a wonderful song. Yeah, absolutely. But you have like a, a pretty good variety of stuff that you've recorded. Are you looking for songs or, or do they kind of find you? They find me because the thing is, is pretty much everything I do 
is stuff that I've done my whole life. It's mostly songs that I've known forever. You know what I mean? Because I take my work with the Great American Songbook very seriously. I'm proud to be one of the people who's one of the history bearers, you know, one of the ones who sort of keeps it alive and does a whole lot of what the composers would have wanted, you know? So they find me because it'll be the kind of thing where it's like, I've heard a song my whole life and then I hadn't heard it in a while and I'll hear it randomly somewhere and it'll really resonate. And I'll just know, okay, well, it's time for that one. It's time, you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, it just, it happens very naturally. I find that if I'm trying to go in search of material, I'm not going to end up with anything that's super heartfelt or honest. Now, do the people around you, like your friends, just people that you know, do they ever suggest songs to you? Oh, yeah, all the time. In fact, um, lots of people who are not my friends <laughs> are music suggestions too. <laughs> Everyone does. Everyone does. And a lot of times they're wonderful. A lot of times they're a little weird, but, you know, I'm always, it's a really nice thing to have people thinking of you in that way. You know what I mean? That they'd hear some song and go, oh man, wouldn't it be nice if Jane sang it? You know what I mean? It warms my heart. So I'd always think it's really nice when people tell me those things. Usually I don't do people's suggestions. And the reason why is because it has to be something that really comes from my gut. I need to be really connected to it. Otherwise, there isn't really a point in singing a standard, I feel like, you know. So, you know, I don't often do them, but I but I really appreciate that people offer their ideas to me. It's really sweet. Yeah. Just a moment ago, you were remarking that you were someone who was keeping the American Songbook going, and you said that you think and you, you like to try to do what the composers and lyricists would have wanted. I'm hoping you can In elaborate. Most cases, yes. Well, you know, okay. A lot certain composers I'm sure loved jazz versions of their tunes. Certain ones really did not. Uh, you know, um whenever I do a tune, I think it's really important to look back at what the original changes were. Um, make sure you really know the original melody, the original lyrics. I'm not as good about that. I mean, I learn them, but I forget words terribly. I'm notorious for it, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> but it's, a lot of times I use lyric sheets to, on stage to make sure I'm getting it right, because it's important to pay that respect. Just because I have a terrible memory doesn't mean, you know, like Oscar Hammerstein should suffer. But anyway, you know, the jazz recordings of these tunes most often the instrumental recordings, uh, a lot of times the harmony will be changed. You know, it'll be a reharmonization that, you know, some band leader wanted to do because it helped him express the story he was trying to tell, or it could be different changes for the solos to make soloing a little more accessible. You know what I mean? So I think it's really nice to go back, find the changes, find the harmony that Richard Rodgers intended, that Gershwin intended, you know what I mean? And then you go from there. Then you tell your story from the base not from what someone else did. And I'll tell you what, I've had enough arrangements and interpretations and things sort of ripped off for me over the years to know that it's really, really important to go back to square one and to really find your own voice on these tunes. Otherwise, there's no point in doing them. Hmm. On the note of songwriters, one of your past albums that I have in my collection would be The Lovers, The Dreamers, and Me. Mm-hmm. Did you ever hear if Paul Williams had a reaction to your interpretation of that song, The Rainbow Connection? You know, I don't know, but I did 
at another point record a song that he wrote lyrics for. Actually, I've recorded several tunes that he wrote lyrics for. But this was something, it was a new song that he had written, and it was on an album for Phil Ramone called New Music for an Old Friend. And it's this really, really pretty song. And I recorded that, and Paul sent me an email just like, you know, hello, really like your version of the tune, you know, kind of vibe. And I freaked out, you know, like lost my mind, you know. He was so kind to me. But I've never met him in person. Um, and I have no idea if he ever heard my version of Rainbow Connection. Probably not. There's millions of versions. But that one time he was so kind to me, I'll never forget as long as I live. It was really cool. <laughs> hmm. That Paul Williams is something else. <laughs> yeah, what a genius. Who would you say some of your favorite songwriters are on that note? Oh, wow. Well, outside of the guys in the songbook, you know, which, of course, all of them. Um, you know, I, I really love I really love modern music as well. And I mean, there have been the second half of the 20th century. I mean, the writers and not just American writers. I mean, a lot of British writers, Canadian, Joni Mitchell, Burt Bacharach, Carol King, Stevie Wonder. I mean, you know, it's it's songwriters like this, you know, that I tend to really gravitate to as well. Like in my house, if we're going to put a record on, we put on Stevie, we put on Earth, Wind & Fire, we put on Al Jarreau. So, you know, it's a lot of those kind of modern songwriters that I listen to at home. So I love that kind of thing. But when I'm choosing songs for my work in the Great American Songbook, it's totally equal opportunity. I love everybody. I might gravitate a little harder to like Arlen Berlin, but I love everybody. And... Would it be possible for you to say which singer has had the biggest influence on you personally? I would say Ella Fitzgerald. Ella Fitzgerald and Judy Garland, uh, certainly. I mean, uh, gosh, that's a hard one. There have been so many, but I think number one, it would have to be probably Ella, I think. (laughs) Probably Ella. Yeah, Ella. And I'm hoping you can tell us about this album of yours. And for all the listeners out there, it's entitled The Songbook Sessions, Ella Fitzgerald. Well, it was it was really a neat thing to make. I had known for a million years I wanted to do an Ella tribute, but I didn't want to do it in a way where I was just sort of like, you know, swinging standards in a really sort of um, super traditional fashion. I mean, that definitely appears on the album because that's a big part of what I do just as a human being in my life. But Ella she was always down to try new things. She did all kinds of crazy recordings. You know, she recorded sunshine of your love. I mean, she did all kinds of cool stuff. So, you know, I was working with Nicholas Payton on the record. He's a dear friend and an icon of this music. And he and I really felt like we just didn't want to do what was expected. We wanted to try some different things and we did. And that's very much in the spirit of jazz. You pay tribute to someone, not by copying what they've done, but by taking the things you learned and extrapolating from there, like in their honor. And that's what we tried to do. Probably a very difficult question, but if you could pick the highlight of the album, the song that you would say to represent the Songbook Sessions album, which one would it be? You know, that that is really hard. Um, You know, there's such a mix of traditional and modern elements on the album i think maybe one tune that brings that together a little bit might be all too soon there's a really interesting bass line there's a traditional feel to the groove you know what i mean it's this very sort of like you know cocktail feeling in the groove you know 
And then there's this bass line that rhythmically feels totally appropriate, but then harmonically throws you for a little bit more of a loop. And so there's just this sort of nice mix of the traditional and the more modern in that tune. One of my other favorites from the record that really sort of represents what Nick Payton and I do together is I Got You Under My Skin. Now that's, you know, famous Cole Porter tune, but what Nick did is he added really modern elements underneath. We we decided it would just be really fun to go for it. And so we play the tune over the Don't Stop Till You Get Enough groove. Do you know what I mean? So <laughs> it's really kind of interesting. But the thing is, is all of that modern arranging tells the story 100%. And that's the most important thing. So yeah, those are those are two of my favorite cuts in the record. When you're doing a project like this, the Songbook Sessions, Elder Fitzgerald, are you at all thinking about the life of the singer? Are you thinking about like the biographical details at all? Um, I think that would really sort of depend on the project and the, you know, the person's life, the view you're trying to take. We were really just focused on music on this project, but I will tell you that something from Ella's life is a huge influence on me all the time. And that's that no matter who you talk to, no matter where you go, you only hear stories of her great warmth and kindness. She was beloved by all of just a beautiful soul. And I really, really try in my work, she ate every moment to never, I would never engage in diva behavior. I would rather die. <laughs> So I, I really try to bring that warmth and happiness and kindness into my work and spread love the same way she did. That's, that's, that's great. I mean, anybody who has had to encounter, whether working backstage or they were trying to interview somebody who, male or female, is a diva, <laughs> would, <laughs> would appreciate what you're saying. Well, in my view there's absolutely no excuse it's like oh gee well you're living your dream let's be a weenie to everybody about it i mean <laughs> how does that add up i just i can't do that math i just can't so <laughs> you know i try to be awesome and everybody i employ the band members i bring with me and if someone's getting hired to be in my bands i know that they're as professional and awesome off stage as they are on you know, it's it's important. We show up at a venue. We want to treat people as beautifully as they treat us. You know, we all have to support each other. It's The music business is hard. We're all here because we love it and we want to be, but the business is kicking all our butts right now. So it's all the more reason to be good to each other. Mm -hmm. Gene Wilder, he used to always like to say the expression, it's nice to be important, but it's more important to be nice. Yes, that's <laughs> so true. The truer words were never spoken. Now, you were just saying a second ago about the industry kicking our butts, meaning the, the music business. Yeah. It's been hard for a lot of songwriters out there, a lot of producers, everybody all around to survive. Yeah, venues too. It's hard. What kind of things do you see changing for the better? For the better? Mm-hmm. Right now, that's kind of a tough one to say. I'm not sure yet. I mean, it's nice to see artists taking their work back into their own hands. 
it's nice that we've pretty much decided as a group that we're not going to be corporate slaves anymore, you know, but it's been hard going and slow going for everybody. We still have yet to see how streaming is really going to fully play out and affect everyone. I think today was Spotify's 10th anniversary and they're still operating at a massive loss. So who knows how, how any of that's going to turn out. Uh, the venues are struggling. The artists are struggling. You know, it's like plane tickets are more expensive. Everything's getting crazy. We're all just hanging in there. But everybody's learning a lot. And there's a lot of solidarity between musicians. We're all hanging in there for each other. Whenever you go through any sort of, like, difficulty, you always come out better on the other side. We all will. It's just a matter of how it's all going to play out and how many of us can manage to support each other enough to all stay afloat, you know? What do you see as the biggest challenge right now in the music business? Well, uh, I don't know. From my perspective, in my direct work, what I do, the hardest thing is getting to be keeping a band on the road because of the outrageous expense of the world. Uh, that's getting to be certainly the most difficult thing or getting a product made. You know, it's like if you don't want to be signed to a major label, and I've been down that road many times and it's not really appropriate for me anymore because I need to have more control over my work. If you don't have that behind you and you're not willing to, you know, just ask people to fund it for you or don't have the time and energy to put into a crowdfunding campaign, which is a whole job in itself, you know, then it's like, what do you do then? You know, so people are really trying to figure that out. And honestly, keeping a band on the road is getting harder and harder. Hmm. You know, I mean, I, I almost never have a show anymore with my exact original trio because I have to fly people from places where it's more affordable. And many of the headliners I know are doing the same thing. So that's a big challenge right now for those of us in this sort of tier of the entertainment business. One thing I like hearing about from singers is when they have like, not so secret, but a kind of secret wish for a recording project. And what I mean by that, it was said by people around Frank Sinatra that he really, really wanted to make a country album at some point. And so I'm curious, is there anything that you have in mind, maybe you have a couple ideas written on paper, that you think, one day I want to do an album like this? Fill in the blank. Oh, big time. Like, I want to make, I want to make the gigantic orchestral musical theater album big time you know <laughs> i want to make you know with like big band swinging musical theatery numbers in between like break it up i want to make another christmas album that's more influenced by my bluegrass roots i mean there's so much i want to do so it's just a matter of time i mean i've already made 10 records and i'm 40 so i got i'm i've got many more to come <laughs> <laughs> well who would you like to do a duet with that you haven't yet you know, someone asked me this earlier today in a different interview. They asked me who I was dying to sing with, and I could only think of one thing. One, well, it's a group. It's not a person. Hmm. Take six. Oh, my God. Die. Die of happiness. As it is, I show up and I'm like a creepy fan, so it'll probably <laughs> never happen. She's a little strange. <laughs> she likes us a little too much. Maybe this isn't a good idea, so it'll probably never happen. But... <laughs> Well, never say never. <laughs> <laughs> now let's 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 um, play with the dream a little more. If you were going to do a song with them, what song would it be? Hmm. It would be something like a cappella and like him, like 
and like totally magical, like a, like a beautiful, like a Christmas song or something. Can you tell I love Christmas? That's the second time I've brought it up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it'd be something like that. Something really, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know. Something, uh, something almost sacred, something, you know, magical and sort of, yeah. Something that should be sung a cappella in a cathedral. Uh-huh. You, know? you were mentioning a fan, fans a moment ago. I'm curious, what is it like for you when somebody comes up to you and you can tell they're in awe? They, they're so excited <laughs> to meet you. I never get over it, really. And I always, like, I'm always just, like, hugging them and, like, patting them and, like, no, 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 don't be nervous. I'm I'm a weirdo. Like, it's just, <laughs> I promise. I'm not, like, famousy. You know, <laughs> I'm just a nice mommy from the suburbs, you know. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I never really get over it. I meet so many nice people. It's unbelievable. I like that word, famousy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't really operate that way, you know. What is the best thing about being Jane Monheit? Uh the best thing? Yeah. Um I mean my my beautiful son and my magical husband that I get to love every day. I mean they're better than work any day. I love them. But I mean honestly getting to do this job and not just getting to do this job, but the fact that my family always believed in me from day 1 that I'd be able to do it and I was able to grow up do it and make everybody proud after they supported me like crazy doing this, including paying for my college education at a conservatory. I mean, my parents did it for me. They're ama- I mean, they're downstairs in the dining room, like having supper right now while I talk to you. Like I can literally go downstairs and thank them again. <laughs> you know, I mean, they're amazing. So yeah, I mean, it all comes down to family for me because they were the ones that have always made it possible for me to do this. So that's the best thing about being me is all of them. This is kind of going to seem like it's from the middle of nowhere. I don't know. But one of the songs that you sang, it's been recorded by many, many, many people. But I have to say, you did a fantastic version. I think it was on the Come Dream With Me album. I'm talking about Mm -hmm. Over the Rainbow. (laughs) Yeah. What goes through your head when you're singing that one? Well, I mean, I've always... (laughs) sung that tune because it was a a big one for me during childhood. So when I first started doing that tune when I was in my early 20s, um, and it took some convincing, I didn't want to do it at first because I thought everyone did, you know. Everyone said, no, your version's good enough, you should do it anyway, and I'm glad I trusted them. But uh, so it it was about my childhood then. Now it's about the world and has been for some time. It's either about the world or whatever's going on internally with me that day. It's kind of different every day. You know, I I just went to Mexico for the first time, sang the tune at the concert, sobbing, because I'd never been there before. The people were so wonderful that I couldn't believe that, you know, all this build a wall nonsense. So I was weeping during the, you know, so it's always about something different, you know. Does it seem like that song gets kind of a a special reaction from people? Definitely, because they all have some sort of important association with it. Almost everyone does have some sort of childhood memory or something that song's got meaning for everyone. Yeah. You know, even if they hate it. (laughs) (laughs) I always like to end my interviews very open-ended. You Mm -hmm. can go anywhere you want with this. 
you can just take the stage. What would you say to anyone who's tuned in? Well, I want to thank them for supporting this music. You know what I mean? Because, you know, we don't have a massive audience for this anymore. Every last person makes a difference for us. So it's, I really appreciate it. I'm sure you do too. And, you know, I know all my fellow artists certainly do too. Anyone out there, if they want to visit the website, it's Jane Monheide Online. I'm going to spell J-A-N-E-M-O-N-H-E-I-T-O-N-L-I-N-E. And thank you very, very much for joining us. It's been a great thank pleasure. You. Thanks for having me. It was an honor. Well, thank you, and happy 15th. Thank you. All right. Well, until next time. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much. I appreciate it a lot. Oh, anytime. All right. Hope we can talk again. Okay, definitely. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment and Media. The Paul Leslie theme song composed, recorded, and produced by Jeff Pike. Outro music, composed, recorded, and produced by John Goodwin, originally appearing in the short film Malukas and Vulnerable Jelly Things. Please consider subscribing to the Paul Leslie Hour, and if you like us, give us a review. It'll help other people to find this content. All past interviews are also available on YouTube. For more information, you can visit thepaulleslie.com and be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Paul Leslie. Thanks for listening. Be good. <laughs>